Thanks for downloading Dark Histories. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can get involved and help support the show. We have a Patreon, Amazon Booklist, Coffee, and Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way that best suits you. All of the links for those things can be found either in the show notes or over on the website at darkhistories.com. Of course, just continuing to spread the word about the show on social media, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends is also a huge help. So thank you to everyone for all that. All right, enough of this. Let's crack on with the episode. Seven years is a long time. For a convict like Alexander Pierce, the prospect of seven years serving the crown in a distant land, effectively working as slave labour, was much too long. Arrested, tried and shipped off to the penal colonies of the New World, life had served Pierce a pretty bum hand over the past few years, and now he found himself with no shoes, lost in the middle of a rainforest, with only the forearm of one of the members of his old chain gang to chew on. Freedom was not panning out quite as he thought it would. When Pierce's narrative of his misadventures in the penal colonies of Australia was initially published in pamphlet form in 1824, the introduction described it as a rollicking story of escape, adventure, misfortune and intrigue. Though it certainly glossed over a few gory details, cleaning it up for public consumption, it's hard to reach the end and then argue with the sentiment. Pierce, however, if he was still alive, might have called it something else entirely. This is Dark Histories where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 4, Episode 11, I'm pretty sure. I hope everyone is doing well. I hope this finds you all healthy and happy. So we're pretty much going to just launch straight into this episode. First, of course, like always, I just want to say thank you to all the patrons. So new sign-ups, we've got Robert, Melissa, Kelsey. We've got another Robert. We got Mel, Mr. Book, Disaster. <laughs> I, I maybe you're a disaster. I don't know. I, that's not my words. Vanessa, John, Joel, Christian, Ishmael, Nick, Milo, Dave, Alex, Mary, and Louise. Uh, Nick actually sent me an email in the week about how to sign up for like the ad-free uh, episodes once you're a patron um, and how to get like all the bonus content it's actually quite frequent email i get because patrons really not that helpful for people there and um, but there is a post on patreon that explains how to do it um which you should be able to find um I, I think i stickied it to the top but if not do get in touch so if you do struggle with that um get in touch because it isn't that clear patron isn't that helpful about it so yeah, if you do, do struggle, do feel free to get in touch and I'll, and I'll do my best to help you and, and get it all sorted for you. So yeah, thank you very much for your support as always. Also want to say thank you to Katie who uh, bought one of the books from my Amazon wishlist um, that I used for one of these episodes. So thanks very much, Katie. Otherwise, that's pretty much that. So we can crack on with the episode. Uh, this one is Alexander Pierce, A Disturbing Journey Through the New World. In the 18th and 19th centuries, being arrested whilst gradually becoming less potentially fatal could still harbour the very real possibility of life-changing decisions being made against the defendant in court. London was overcrowded, unemployment was endemic, and jails were busting at the seams. 
This was a problem that was exacerbated by the abolition of capital punishment for petty crimes, such as shoplifting and pickpocketing in 1808. Hand in hand with the sweeping social changes that the Industrial Revolution was creating across Britain, the rolling back of the use of execution as punishment was seen by its detractors as advancing the country morally. However, it was becoming clearly apparent that the infrastructure to house a population of criminals many of whom were increasingly finding themselves forced into a position of desperation through economic displacement, was just not available. Floating prisons, large ex-Navy French and East India Company ships converted into makeshift prisons floated on the Thames. Hideously overcrowded and with little to no adequate facilities, these ships stacked inmates into packed chambers full of excrement and disease, leading to mortality rates as high as 30%. With no suitable setup for medium to long-term incarceration, the British government turned to a new, more novel idea for what to do with the prisoners. In the early 18th century, transportation became heavily utilised as a way to drain the nation of its offensive rubbish, as it was so eloquently put by the Vicar of Wendover. Convicted criminals were systematically sent to the American colonies to be sold for slave labour, accounting for almost 25% of all British immigrants to colonial America between the years of 1700 right up until the revolution. Penal transportation, as it came to be known, was a convenient way to handle the prison overcrowding issues, deal with criminals in a more humane manner than execution, build a cheap, expendable workforce in the colonies, and offer the convicts a landscape in which it was thought they could gain some element of redemption and start a new life. All they had to do was survive the seven or 14 year stint characterised by perilous travel, inhumane living conditions, constant starvation and backbreaking labour. When it inevitably rolled around, the American Revolution in the early 1780s had the unfortunate side effect of temporarily derailing Britain's programme of criminal exile until, in 1787, the earlier founding of Sydney in New South Wales presented a new opportunity to offload prisoners to distant lands for expendable colony-building labour. On the 13th of May 1787, the first ships carrying convicts sailed for Australia to establish a British colony. After eight months at sea, the ships arrived with 778 convicts aboard in Botany Bay on the east coast of Australia. Quickly realising that the land surrounding the bay offered little in the way of arable land and next to no shelter from the bracing easterly winds, the party upped sticks and ventured further north until they found a sheltered cove which they promptly named Sydney Cove and declared the land their new home in the name of the king. It was the first of what would become a steady stream of convicts to Australia over the next century, creating Britain's biggest penal colony that stretched across what would become New South Wales and later Van Diemen's Land, a large island 150 miles to the south of the Australian mainland. Van Diemen's Land, renamed in 1856 after Abel Tasman, the first European to discover the island in 1642, was home to one of the largest penal colonies in all of Australia and the primary penal colony from the early 1800s until the abolition of transportation in 1853. During the half century that it operated as a penal colony, it saw the turnover of just over 40% of all transportations from Britain to Australia. Upon British arrival, Van Diemen's land was a mountainous landscape with peaks of over 1600 metres and deep valleys of impassable, temperate rainforest interspersed with large areas of tall grass plains. Small in comparison to the mainland, it is not an insignificant island, spanning 200 miles from east to west and north to south at its widest points. Whilst the weather could be mild year-round, 
It sees high rates of rainfall and high humidity, along with brutally high winds, whipping off from the Southern Ocean. The first penal colony in Tasmania was established in 1803. Initially settled as a defensive outpost, it would later become known as Hobart Town and was to be the principal town of the Tasmanian colony and the second largest penal colony in all of Australia. In 1820, the colony expanded to include Sarah's Island in Macquarie Harbour in a cove on the west coast of Tasmania. The harbour was guarded by a natural entrance of sharp rock striking out from the shallow sea known as Hell's Gates. High winds, rough waters and a shallow seabed made for a treacherous approach to the harbour's entrance, dangerous enough without the added fast currents that threatened to pounce on a ship, dashing it against the black, jutting rock. With the densely forested landscape and harsh terrain, it was deemed as practically impossible to escape from, making it well equipped to house the convicts who logged in the local area for shipbuilding lumber, cutting down the tall pines that were then sent back to the mainland. It was soon decided that the shipbuilding would be far more efficient if it was contained within the Tasmanian colony, and so Macquarie Harbour became the principal shipbuilding facility within Australia. Due to the natural isolation and treacherous surrounding terrain, Sarah's Island operated as a place of secondary punishment, where the more rebellious, difficult-to-control convicts could be transferred to further isolate them far away from the main population in Hobart Town and the surrounding area. Life in Hobart Town for a convict was by no means a walk in the park, but it was a long way away from the typical ideas of modern incarceration. Convicts sent to Hobart Town were divided to work either for the government or contracted out to private citizens, usually working on sheep and cattle farms. In the afternoons, once their penal work was finished, they were permitted to work freely for themselves within the town in order to pay for their own accommodation and food, which would only be provided to convicts working on select farms that had the space. For those up on their luck, alcohol and prostitutes made up the bulk of any excess expenditure. Not everyone chose to work, of course, and there was always the possibility of making a more chaotic living through gambling and robbing the locals instead. Rum was cheap and easily available in one of the many inns and pubs that lined the unpaved streets, so for many, drinking oneself to oblivion of an evening with other convicts was a regular pastime, at least until the curfew bell rang at 9pm. At the end of the week, all convicts were expected to attend church service and skipping was a punishable offence. The level of freedom afforded the convicts of Hobart Town was only made possible via a strict regime of discipline and along with the back-breaking daily work and nightly curfews was mainly carried out with the threat of flogging. The primary method of punishment for any convict was the lash, where they would be tied up to the triangle, a quickly erected wooden frame stripped to the waist and their back would be whipped with a cat and nine tails. Floggings were harsh and frequently handed out. Minor misdemeanours such as being drunk and disorderly, thieving, insolence to one's superiors or absconding from church or work were all dealt with by the lash. Sentences of 25 lashes were handed out remarkably casually, extending to 50, 75 and 100 depending on the severity of the crime or how often the convict had wound up in trouble. If 25 lashes sounds like a minor punishment, it's worth pointing out that the skin would be broken before a handful of lashes were done and at times the triangle would be set up close to the surgeon's office for the sake of convenience. By the time the flogging was over, the convict on the end of the beating would more often than not need to be hospitalised, being carried away from the macabre scene as flecks of blood skipped across the ground along with strips of flesh. Generally speaking, however, transportation, despite all the grim facets, was for the most part seen as a more humane punishment than execution, 
because, on paper at least, it encouraged hard work within a community that the convict could well end up living in once their sentence was completed. For some convicts, though, a life living by the iron rule of the colony's authorities just didn't come easy, and breaking the rules was a common occurrence. When this happened, and authorities finally got sick of the troublemakers, they were sent to the more isolated colonies, set up as a form of secondary punishment. Sarah's Island was the primary destination for these prisoners, a cold, damp and unforgiving colony on the western coast of Tasmania, dominated by dysentery, disease and malnutrition. Convicts sent to Sarah's Island looked forward to the prospect of hard labour, working long shifts in leg irons, after which they were sent to cells with very little freedom or future prospects at all. In 1820, when Alexander Pierce stepped off the boat in Hobart Town to be catalogued and assigned work, he may or may not have heard of Sarah's Island. It was, however, not long before he would become intimately familiar with the isolated colony. His trip to Australia had been a quiet affair, but his life as a Hobartonian would become anything but. Alexander Pierce was born in 1790 in the northeast Irish county of Monaghan. Standing five foot three inches tall, thin, clean-shaven with blue eyes and brown hair, his facial scars from smallpox were a sign of the times that he grew up in. In fact, smallpox is one of the only things that we can know about his early life in Ireland, with any other information remaining much of a mystery. Born at the start of an explosion in population size, he grew up in a country that saw cities and towns grow over 150% throughout his lifetime. Poverty was rife, and the English rule was a fairly direct cause for a chaotic and tumultuous landscape. It seems fairly safe to deduce that at least Pierce's adulthood was driven by a tendency to commit petty crime. Aside from his illiteracy, the only record for his life in Ireland is from the Armagh court system, where he was tried for stealing six pairs of boots in 1819, aged 29. In 1819, this was a crime that fell squarely into the realms of transportation candidacy. And so it was with Pierce who found himself suddenly facing the prospect of seven years' transportation to Australia. Found guilty, he was marched 200 miles on foot to Cork Harbour, where he awaited his departure aboard the Castle Forbes, a 439-tonne, flat-bottomed, triple-masted merchant ship, with a cargo of 140 other prisoners, all facing the same fate. Of the 140 convicts aboard, all but one was Irish, with age ranges from 14 to 64 years old. Of these, the majority, just like Pierce, were heading out to Australia to face seven years in the penal colonies, though ten were facing 14 years and six were staring a life sentence in the face. Guarding the 140 convicts was a task that fell to a reasonably small force of 22 privates of the 34th and 89th regiments, presided over by four non-commissioned officers and one lieutenant. Although the Castle Forbes was built for capacity rather than speed, it's unlikely to have been a comfortable journey. Prisoners were locked below deck, stuffed into tiny quarters, six feet square, four beds per suite, with little in the way of ventilation or sanitation. The main prisoners took up the majority of the space below deck, with the doctor's quarters crammed into one corner and vulnerable young prisoners crammed into the other. During storms, hatches would be closed, extinguishing any ventilation, and as toilets flooded, stomachs rolled, and seawater mixed with all manner of fluids and waste, the prisoner deck would frequently become the scene of absolute squalor. For the convicts aboard the ship, two hours a day on deck was their only escape, which, fortunately, was managed most days in small groups. Discipline was strictly maintained throughout the journey, with convicts forced to adhere to a tightly followed regimen. 
They were issued with three shirts, two pairs of trousers, one pair of shoes, one woolen sweater and a woolen cap. Each convict was expected to keep up an appearance of cleanliness despite the rough circumstances and they were allotted twice weekly clothes washing days of Mondays and Fridays. Shaving was allowed on Thursdays and Saturdays, decks and floors were scrubbed daily and, would, and divine service was held on Sundays. The diet for convicts consisted of bread, beef, pork, pea meal, butter, rice, oatmeal, sugar and sweet and lime juice, at least whilst the stock lasted after which the fallback was ship's biscuits, a stodgy bread-like savoury that more often than not was stale and previously ravaged by all manner of bugs and maggots. The Castle Forbes left Cork Harbour on the 3rd of October 1819 and headed on a course due south, cruising around the coast of Spain and Africa, only moving further out to sea to avoid the shallow flats of the West African coast before turning sharply east once it hit the Southern Ocean. The rapid and strong winds of the Southern Ocean made for fast but treacherous travel. Storms whipped up from nowhere, causing waves to roll up to 90 feet. The storms would have been unwelcome aboard any ship, but aboard the Castle Forbes, they came at a reasonably good time. With trouble kicking off between the soldiers and the chosen lieutenant, who they had deemed as incompetent before they'd even left Cork, resentment only grew at sea until by late December, 17 of the 22 soldiers aboard were dangerously close to mutiny. The storms that rolled in, therefore, were seen as something of a saving grace, working to quell any urge to rebel as most men suffered severe seasickness and demoralising conditions. After a rough final leg to the journey, the Castle Forbes rolled up to Port Jackson, now better known as Sydney Harbour, on the 27th of January 1820, with a belly full of convicts suffering from dysentery and food poisoning. With land so close, it must have come as some frustration when the convicts were promptly redirected to Hobart Down in Van Diemen's land before they'd even disembarked. The only pleasure for the cooped up prisoners was the fact that they were at least now freely allowed to venture up on the main deck whilst they awaited orders, finally coming in early February, signalling another 140 mile 12 day trip to their final destination. Once the Castle Forbes reached Van Diemen's land, the convicts were disembarked, catalogued with all marks of identification such as scars, birthmarks and tattoos, and the entire flock was quickly assigned work, partly based on any relevant skills they had, if any, either for the government or on a private farm. Alexander Pierce, numbered Prisoner 102, touched dry land for the first time in four months. He found himself in a strikingly strange land. At the time of his arrival, Hobart Town had a population of 4,901, 58% of which were convicts. If the ratio of officers to convicts seemed out of balance on the Castle Forbes, it paled in comparison to the situation in Van Diemen's Land, where hardline discipline ruled rather than raw numbers, creating a bizarre atmosphere that harboured the threat of a constant and chaotic rebellion just below the surface. Pierce's first work detail wound him up on a sheep farm belonging to John Bellinger, on the northern outskirts of Hobart Town. At first, he seemed to continue his quiet attitude, which he had been noted for aboard the Castle Forbes, returning to Hobart Town after nine months, where he was promptly sent to a second sheep farm, this time belonging to another private citizen named William Scattergood. Scattergood was an example of the perfect outcome of transportation, himself an ex-con who had finished his sentence only to reintegrate into the society that he had helped to build and then go on to prosper within. His example did not leave much of an impression on Pierce, however, who escaped into the bush, growing tired of the dangerous shepherding work 
that held a constant threat of clashes with the Aboriginal tribes when the sprawling farms veered onto tribal territory. As an escapee, Pierce joined a small group of three other escaped convicts, who, banding together, formed a gang that was colloquially known as Bush Rangers. Bush Rangers, who had fled from work, would frequently enjoy freedom for short periods, skimming the settled territories, living in the bush and stealing for sustenance, before inevitably getting caught or simply handing themselves in once survival became too difficult. For Pierce, his brief sojourn as a bush ranger lasted three months until they surrendered under an amnesty in March 1821. For most escapees, the freedom of the bush ranger life was appealing as a short break, but eventually the inability to spend their evenings getting drunk on cheap rum surrounded by other convicts wore them down. The escape signalled the end of Pierce's quiet honeymoon in Australia, and within two months, he found himself in court once more for embezzling two turkeys and three ducks. He was sentenced to 50 lashes for the misdemeanour and hard labour for 14 days, with solitary confinement at night. The punishment was clearly not much of a deterrent, and twice more in that same year, Pierce found himself back in court, first in November on a charge of drunken disorderly and theft of a wheelbarrow, for which he was sentenced to 75 lashes, and a third time on the 26th of November for being drunk and disorderly and for stealing a glass from the ship inn, the pub he had spent that evening drinking. Once more he received a flogging and six months hard labour with a chain gang, but in March of 1822, two months before his punishment was due to end, he took off with six other members of the convict gang to enjoy a second stint as a bush ranger. A £10 reward was issued in the local paper for each man who had escaped which quickly put an end to the second taste of freedom. This time, however, it was the final nail for Pierce, who had frustrated the officials one too many times. On the 6th of July, 1822, he was tried for absconding and forgery of money, for which he was found guilty and sentenced to secondary punishment. For Pierce, that meant being shipped out from Hobart Town to Macquarie Harbour on the western coast of Van Diemen's Land and the penal colony of Sarah's Island. The location of the Sarah's Island penal colony was chosen precisely due to its secluded environment. Tucked into a cove behind the infamous Hell's Gates and surrounded by dense rainforests and mountain ranges, it was a penal colony that focused on a far more traditional, modern idea of incarceration. Work detail centred around chopping lumber from the tall trees, most of which was utilised in shipbuilding. Prisoners were expected to work on meagre rations, their legs chained in irons. When Alexander Pierce arrived in 1822, there were 170 convicts serving their sentences, governed over by only 11 soldiers. Just like Hobart Town, the authorities kept a tight ship by ensuring strict discipline at all times, but here on Sarah's Island, everything was magnified. Punishments for those difficult-to-manage prisoners routinely included 100 lashes and stints of extended solitary confinement. Rations per convict were limited to £10 of bread and £7 of salted beef or pork per week, with a gruel-like watery stew fed daily. Scurvy and dysentery were prevalent, as was rheumatism, which was exacerbated by the almost constant cold, damp weather as the west coast bore the brunt of the southern ocean storms that rolled in relentlessly, especially throughout July to September. As the new arrivals stepped off the boat in Macquarie Harbour, Alongside Pierce on the 22nd of July, 1822, the pubs and cheap rum of Hobart Town would have felt a long way away. Speaking of penal settlements, Thomas Lempierre, the commissary officer for Macquarie Harbour, 
showed his own opinions on how a penal colony should be run, along with the role of poor conditions in the colonies, when he wrote, A penal settlement is, and ought to be, an abode of misery to those whose crimes have sequestered them from the society of their fellow creatures. Were it a place of comfort, the very object of which such establishments are formed, the punishment and reform of malefactors, would become nugatory. Pierce was assigned logging duty with the Labour gang of seven others. Robert Greenhill, a 40-year-old Englishman who was serving a sentence of 14 years for stealing his wife's coat. Matthew Travers, a 27-year-old Irishman serving life for theft. Alex Dalton, a 25-year-old Irishman. Thomas Boddenham, the youngest of the gang, was a 22-year-old Englishman. John Mather and William Kennelly were English and Irish respectively. The eldest of the group was named William Little Brown, who was in his late 50s. The eight-man gang were hustled to their logging area every morning at 6am, where they faced a day of logging, stripping bark from trees, and then tying their haul into makeshift rafts that they would then drag back to the penal colony. In 1822, the logs were shipped back to Hobart Town or mainland Australia, but eventually, in 1824, the shipbuilding operation was moved to Macquarie Harbour itself. Unsurprisingly, when small gangs of difficult prisoners prone to escaping were lumped together in the harsh environment of Sarah's Island, talk would soon turn to escape. The problem for the convicts was not one of motivation, but rather one of possibility. The environment was treacherous, densely forested and thought to be impassable. Much of the area outside of the direct locality of the colony was uncharted territory, and entire mountain ranges, plains and rainforests sat on the horizon whose legends on maps bore no names. In the months prior to Pierce's arrival, a gang of men had attempted escape. Three officers were sent out after them, but none returned and had all been thought lost to the environment. Still, even stories such as these didn't stop Pierce and his crew from planning out their escape. Greenhill, who had a background as a sailor, assumed the role of leadership and was probably the only member of the group with any knowledge of geography and navigation whatsoever. As the days ticked by and the starvation began biting, along with the incessant, cold, damp, rainy weather, the gang began to seriously plan an escape attempt. It was ambitious at best and included stealing a whaleboat from the harbour, which they would then use to sail out through the difficult Hell's Gates rock formation entrance. In late September, as the group were gearing up to perform their escape, however, Greenhill was transferred to a different work gang, nine miles up the coast. It was a small hitch, and they adjusted their initial plans to now include Greenhill slipping away to be collected by the main group. On a cold and depressing, but not uncommonly grey sky of Friday the 20th of September, the main group made their move. The first barrier to the group's freedom took the form of the overseer, Constable Logan. Logan was himself actually a convict. With so few official authorities, overseers were convicts who were willing to work on their behalf a job that was a quick ticket to unpopularity amongst the other convicts. Unarmed, they operated successfully by utilising the threat of reporting anyone who stepped out of line to the authorities back in Macquarie Harbour, effectively sending their own kind to the lash. As the group took their breakfast break, they jumped Logan, overpowering him, stripping him of his clothes and tied him to a tree. They then took their small whaleboat up shore to meet Greenhill. When they arrived at around midday, they scuttled the whaleboat raided a miner's hut for provisions and stole a larger boat. With the gang all back together, the eight-man crew then sailed further up shore. Greenhill slipping out had, sadly, not gone unnoticed, however, forcing the group to once again alter their plans 
as signal fires began sending out billows of white smoke into the sky to alert the authorities to an escape. Aware that they would soon be followed, having only managed 500 yards from the main penal colony, the group opted to ditch the boat and instead to head inland on foot. The dense rainforest and bush would shield them from detection and it would be all the easier to throw off any pursuers, reasoning that the last group that chased a group of escapees into the bush never came back. Clambering out of the boat back on shore, Greenhill began to guide the men due east towards Sorrel Mountain, head first into the dense rainforest of Van Diemen's Land. The plan had shifted from the glory of sailing out to sea and finding port in some exotic faraway harbour to one of trekking across Van Diemen's Land back towards Hobart Town where they could live as bushrangers on the periphery for as long as they pleased or were able. With the pressure of being chased, they made good ground, arriving at the base of Sorrel Mountain at three in the afternoon and they hit the peak by nightfall. Looking back down over the bay below them, one of their numbers sat up and stayed watch overnight whilst the rest slept. Most men seemed to feel that they would be pursued at the very least until they were off the peaks and had descended back into the valley below. In reality, the environment was so harsh and given the recent loss of manpower from the previous manhunt, it is perhaps more likely that the officials sat back and let the men go, safe in the knowledge that they would soon come crawling back and if they didn't, the environment would consume them in due course. The next morning, Greenhill marched the group further east along the ridge of the mountains, eventually descending into the valley, where they crossed the Clark River and back up the other side to Darwin's Plateau, a small ridgeline between Mount Darwin and the South Darwin Peak, a 650 metre high mountain range that marked both the border for the Aboriginal tribes of the North and South West Tasmania and also very likely the last known landmark to any European that the group would see. As they descended onto the eastern ridge, it was very probably that Pierce and his gang were the first Europeans to ever cross the range. Staring down into the valley below, as they scaled the mountainside, it dawned on them why few, if any, had gone any further. The rainforest was denser than ever. The canopy housed an impenetrable scrub below, filled with razor-sharp grasses, knotted weeds, branches and vines. The progress into this damp, dark and humid atmosphere would have been intensely slow, with their only option to carve out a path forwards with the axe that they had bought from the penal colony. With their flimsy prison clothes, single axe and Greenhill guiding them, they were woefully underprepared for the journey ahead, a trek that even by modern standards would be classified as demanding, despite bushwalkers using waterproof clothing, specialist tools and digital GPS systems. Whilst the group could feel assured that absolutely no one was going to be pursuing them this far into the wilderness, the slow, difficult and more than likely painful progress would have been intensely demoralising for the party. Depending on how much they trusted Greenhill, even their navigation would have bred a niggling doubt that would bore away into the backs of their minds. By day two, Little Brown was becoming a problem. The eldest member, he at times found himself unable to keep up and within less than 48 hours from their escape, he felt fatigue settle into his tired body. Unceremoniously, Greenhill and co agreed that they would leave him behind if he was unable to keep up, opting to tell him outright. As they pushed on at a crawling pace, the rain lashed down, soaking them through as a relentless downpour persisted for days on end. The fourth day walking offered them some small glimmer of hope as they approached the Andrew River. Once they crossed, they would once again be transferred from the horrors of the rainforest to the peaks of the Engineer Mountain Range. They made their camp that night halfway up the western side of the 700 metre tall range. However, 
Misery was once again quick to set in when it dawned on them that their food rations were running low. With no wherewithal in the wilderness, the chances of them being able to forage or hunt was almost zero. It was a bleak realisation, coupled with their slow progress, that they had barely travelled nine miles of what would be roughly a 70-mile trek. If life on Sarah's island had been difficult for the convicts, it had only worked to prepare them for the challenges that lay ahead as they fell into an uneasy sleep below the sheer rocky cliffs of the Engineer Range. The following day saw more rain hit the island and the escapees' morale was by now noticeably damaged. The stresses of the trek had taken its toll as paranoia, fear and suspicion crept from the backs of every man's mind. The poor diet available to Sarah's Island convicts meant that even before the trek had started, the men were close to, if not already, suffering from starvation. And this, coupled with the fear of the unknown ahead, along with the very real possibility of not making it to the end, were all taking their toll. The group stayed in the camp on the eastern edge of the Engineer Range for two full days in an attempt to rest and gather their energy. By now, the group was fracturing into cliques and paranoia was running rampant. We were all disputing who would get wood for the fire. Some bought it and made fires for themselves. Kennelly made some tinder this night and he put it by as he had some intention of returning to the settlement. Kennelly wasn't the only member doubting the journey ahead and considering a return to Sarah's Island to turn themselves in. Little Brown was still struggling and he too considered a return to camp. The sixth night was the first that anyone uttered the idea of cannibalism as a means to survive, though it was only in passing. It's likely that Greenhill, with his sailing experience, had heard stories of the sea before. Men pushed to desperate measures had, for some time, considered cannibalism as a last resort, an unspoken rule of the oceans. The next night, Pierce, Greenhill, Travers and Mather sat down to discuss the idea in earnest. During the day, this group had separated from the older men, causing a clear split, and now it fell to them to decide who of the second older group they should kill and eat first. As Dalton had volunteered to be a flogger back on Sarah's Island, it was deemed perfectly acceptable that he should be the first one to fall. Convict floggers were well known to be on the lowest rung of respect within the penal colonies, and the same notion simply followed through to the bush. The next day, as the group approached the rainforest near to the Franklin River, penetrating deep into the centre of Van Diemen's land, the group made camp. By now, the two separate groups had noticeably split, with Dalton, Brown and Kennelly making a fire by themselves, camping separately from Greenhill, Mathers, Pierce and Travers. As the smaller group slept, Greenhill crept up upon them, axe in hand, and struck Dalton in the head, killing him outright. Travers dragged the body away from the camp, slit his throat and bled him. Using his knowledge from a prior job as a butcher, he gutted the body, removing the heart and the liver, which were placed on the fire and broiled. He disposed of the rest of the entrails before cutting up and dividing the flesh between the rest of the group. Upon waking, Kennelly and Brown made the rapid decision to escape and head back towards Sarah's island, preferring to take their chances in the wilderness and accept a punishment for returning to the penal colony tail between their legs, rather than risk spending another day in the heavy rainforest with a gang of murderous man-eaters. The only food they took with them for their trip back, however, was their own share of their previous friend, Alexander Dalton. Despite all the odds, the pair actually did make it back to the colony. Greenhill's group adopted not to give chase, assuming that they would never make it back at all, but the pair did collapse into the colony's boundaries on the 12th of October, 
14 days after their initial escape. The journey had been punishing, and both men soon died in the prison hospital, Little Brown first on the 15th of October, and Kennelly following on the 19th. During their time back on Sarah's Island, neither man mentioned the fate of Dalton to a single official. Back in the thick of the punishing rainforests of Van Diemen's Land, Greenhill's gang were making to cross the Franklin River, after which they would ascend yet another mountain range, this time the Deception Range, which rose to 600 metres. The immediate problem for the group, however, was finding a suitable crossing point, given that neither Bodenham nor Travers could swim. After shimmying across with the use of trees and rope, they began to hike up the mountain that would lead them 18 miles from Sarah's Island. By now, it's increasingly likely that the men were suffering from hypothermia from the extreme levels of damp and cold that they had been exposed to for an extended period, as well as the obvious state of starvation, exhaustion, and the infections from the wounds that they would have unquestionably suffered from the knife grass and other dense underbrush of the forest as they had carved their way through. At least after the deception range, the promise of the lightning planes and easier travel lay ahead, at least for a period. The Lightning Plains lay 80 miles to the northwest of Hobart Town, situated around 360 metres above sea level and was characterised by large swathes of flat land, pierced through by the Jane River. It was a swampy, marshy area covered in thick grass and brush. Still, it was easier going than the previous rainforest landscape and the group soon found themselves passing into the Loddon Plains, another open but swampy marshland. Though the brush was considerably easier to pass through, the men's clothing would have been muddy and sodden through, their feet dragging in the thick, molasses-like churn beneath their feet. As they passed through the plains, the problem of food came to the fore once again. The accounts of what happened next between the four men is unlikely to be a true one, but using the words of Pierce and the twisted, gentrified narrative that was later published in London, we can guess to the more disturbing reality. According to Pierce, the men decided to draw lots on who should be next to die in order to sustain the survivors. Bodenham pulled the short straw and gracefully accepted his fate. The only request he had to make was that we allow him a few minutes to implore pardon of his offended maker for his past offences. Apparently, once he had made his peace with the Lord, Greenhill's gang gave him a further 30 minutes for prayer before Greenhill himself once again took an axe to the convict's head and Travers gutted and butchered the remains. There is one more account of this scene, the original account given by Pierce in his own words, but once again, he is conveniently spirited out of the picture, only saying that he was off collecting firewood when Travers and Greenhill attacked Boddenham by the camp's fire, this time with less religious sentiment and ceremony. After Mathers' body had been carved up, Greenhill took his shoes, which were in better shape than his own. Ten years later, when the first European explorer that passed over the Loddon Plains made it to the area, he found the remains of a convict unceremoniously dumped in the plains. Though never officially ID'd, it seems likely that these were all that became of Bodenham, whose body was now merely a mealtime for Greenhill, Travers, Pierce and Mother. As the group traversed the plains over the next three days, a new rift began to widen. Increasingly, Greenhill and Travers grew closer, whilst Pierce and Mother formed their own duo, more out of the increasing need for protection than any deeper connection. As they approached the King William mountain range, Mather suggested to Pierce that the group should officially split and go their separate ways. His fear of Greenhill and Travers was far from unfounded at this point, 
and it's likely that he saw it only as a matter of time before the murderer and butcher would look towards Pierce or himself as their next meal. Perhaps unsurprisingly, it became an acutely accurate hunch, as over the next nights, Mathers fell sick, which prompted Greenhill to attack him with the axe. He struck him in the head, but failed to fatally wound the unwell man. The two groups walked on a little more before making camp for the night. The entire time, Mathers must have known that it was very unlikely that he would ever see the dawn. Once again, conveniently, Pierce spoke of himself as being alone, away from the group, only to find upon his return that Greenhill had killed Mather and Travers was making headway into cutting his carcass for their next meal. Mather was divided up between the three men as usual, leaving only Greenhill, Travers and Pierce camping alone on the mountain range, deep in the wilderness, still miles from civilization. At this point of the journey, one could easily forgive Pierce for living in fear of what was surely an inevitability. Greenhill and Travers had formed a close bond, and failing even that, both men had shown that they had useful skills for survival. Travers was a skilled butcher, and if not for Greenhill, it's likely that the group would still be walking in circles on the border of Sarah's Island. He must have known that he was the next target for butchering. As each night grew in, Pierce lay with one eye open, barely getting any sleep at all. It was something of a lucky break for Pierce then, that as the trio began their march across the Navarre Plains, the ground becoming more open and the travel easier with every step, that Travers suddenly yelped in pain. His foot had been bitten by a snake, and now Pierce was no longer the greatest burden on the group. Even the weather had begun to look up. As the climate and landscape became easier, however, the men were now finding themselves encroaching upon Aboriginal hunting grounds. It's a testament to how poor they must have looked, dragging themselves across the open plains, that they were still alive at all. From the moment that they had made it into the territories, they would have been followed, and if deemed a threat, they absolutely would have been dispatched. As it was, though, the ragtag group was sodden through, dressed in filthy rags and exhausted. They clumsily stumbled through the wilderness, arguing, killing, and eating one another. For their onlookers, attack was simply an unnecessary act. The snake bite had set the group's travel back considerably. They had made camp and rested for five days, whilst Travis's foot mended from the poisonous bite, and even as they set back out on their trek, they were finding themselves carrying him more and more. By the time they crossed the Neve River, his foot had gone gangrene, and his condition was one of deep sickness and infection. As he fell asleep next to the camp's fire the following night, Pierce and Greenhill discussed what should be done with the ailing man. The conclusion was, by now, fairly obvious, but with Greenhill growing so close to the man, it fell this time to Pierce to prove his worth, and kill him with the axe. Pierce promptly dispatched of the job, and his body was carved up and cooked on the fire, though one would hope his rotten foot was given a wide berth by both men. Down to two men, Pierce and Greenhill discussed their next move. They were heading towards Tabletop Mountain, a large 1,000 metre peak, gently to the east of the centre of Van Diemen's Land. Once over the peak, they would be venturing into the outskirts of colonised territory, and they knew that there were ex-Irish convicts who had taken farms in that area who could help them. Whilst their navigation had been far from bad for the entire journey, it was either wishful thinking or a sign of the delirium that both men were by now feeling that they reasoned they must be getting close. Their current position, in fact, had them sat 24 miles northeast of their target. The two men chose to forge onwards, though in fact, they appeared to spend the next few days walking in circles as both men grew increasingly paranoid of the other 
They had spent two days after killing Travers resting and feasting on his body, but food was already becoming a problem. Down to two men, the situation was careening dangerously close to its inevitable conclusion, and the thought preyed on both of their exhausted minds day and night. Each time they stopped to make camp, both made their own fires at a reasonable distance from the other. Greenhill slept with the axe under his head, whilst Pierce chose not to sleep at all. On at least one occasion, Pierce swore that Greenhill had attempted to sneak up on him whilst he lay in bed, pretending to sleep, only being put off from attacking, as Pierce would sit up and suddenly stop the attack in its tracks. There was, according to Pierce, only one thing for it. One evening, while he was asleep, I crept slyly to the brush where he lay and took the axe from under his head and gave him a severe blow which deprived him of his life. Pierce had killed the last remaining threat, but also the only man capable of navigating through the wilderness. He carved up the fleshier parts of his arms and thighs for food and he ditched the rest of the body, stumbling onward in a direction which was, he guessed, in a roughly eastern path. For seven days he walked on, navigating by remembering a conversation he'd had with Greenhill who had told him to simply follow the sun. Throughout the entire time, he had become increasingly paranoid that he was being watched over by eyes in the bush. In reality, he likely was actually being closely followed and watched by the area's Aboriginal tribespeople. However, whether or not that was what he could sense, or whether he was just suffering from a punishing paranoia from the stresses of the journey, is anyone's guess. On the seventh day after killing Greenhill, 18 miles from Table Mountain, and 49 days after his initial escape, Pierce broke through some brush to find a flock of sheep grazing in an area of low grass. Chasing the first lamb he could see, he tore down through the grazing land until he came to a riverbank where he settled until the cold barrel of a musket pushed up against the back of his head. Startled, he turned around only to see the face of an old friend and ex-convict, Paddy Maguire. Recognising Pierce, Paddy took him in and listened to his story giving him shelter and a place to rest and recuperate. For five days, Pierce stayed on the sheep farm with Paddy, and a further 11 days after, stayed with Paddy's brother, Mick, until he felt his strength returning enough to get back out into the bush. The area was home to a small hut that Pierce had built before on a previous escape attempt. Seeking it out, he stayed there for a further seven days. During his time in the area, he fell in with two new escapees from Hobart Town. Ralph Churton and William Davies, and the trio began a life of bushranging that lasted for seven weeks, before finally, on Saturday the 11th of January 1823, as they sat by Lake Tiberius, soldiers from the 48th Regiment caught up with them. One of the Irish ex-convict buddies had apparently grasped them up and sold them out for the $10 reward. By the following Monday, all three men were firmly secured inside the jail in Hobart Town. Whilst incarcerated, it failed to Pierce to explain where he'd been the whole time since his escape from Sarah's Island. The last any official had heard of him was when Little Brown and Kennelly had stumbled back into the colony, only to die a few days later. Pierce's story was so unbelievable at first that no one actually took it to be true. If what he was saying had been the truth, aside from the horrors of butchering and eating a gang of convicts, Pierce was expecting the officials to believe that with barely any provisions or equipment, he had traversed some of the harshest landscape on the planet, and certainly within the Australian colonies. Instead, it was far more believable to think that he was simply covering for his companions, who they assumed were still alive and well out in the bush somewhere. Still, his story did seem to have a realism and level of detail that they couldn't shake, and eventually, 
With no evidence to prove the story either way, the officials were left with little other choice than to accept his story at face value. Pierce was sentenced to lashes, solitary confinement, hard labour in leg irons and sent back to Sarah's Island with little more than a shrug from the officials, who were frankly bemused by the entire situation. Once back at the penal colony, Pierce found that his reputation had preceded him. Convicts spoke of him in whispers as the man-eating con who had escaped out into the wilderness and walked to Hobart Town with nothing but the flesh of his fellow convicts to sustain him. It didn't stop him making friends. Instead, he had found that he had gained something of a hero status within the colony and even appeared to gain admirers. As time ticked by, he found one convict, a young English thief serving a life sentence named Thomas Cox, in particular had grown a liking to him. The pair quickly began discussing a new escape plan, though this time, Pierce wasn't quite as keen, but being swept up in the planning, he found himself making a break for it once more on the morning of Friday the 12th of November, 1823, alongside Cox. It was, once again, under the watch of Constable Logan that he made his escape. Slinking off into the woods, the pair used an axe to pry off their leg irons and headed off into the woods to lay low. They spent the first week sticking to rainforest peripheries in order to avoid detection, and it wasn't until the ninth day that Pierce allowed Cox to set up any sort of camp or even light a fire. In a bizarre twist of events, Pierce quickly drew tired of Cox and attacked him on the night of the 21st of November, striking him in the head with the axe, and then, more disturbingly, he set about carving up the body, placing the head in a tree and chopping off the man's hands. He then sliced up his flesh and began to cook him. This is made all the more worrying when it's realised that Pierce still had provisions, both in fresh fish and bread, and meat that he had taken from the penal colony. The next day, he stashed lumps of Cox's flesh into his pockets, along with some salted pork, and began walking north along the shore, where he spotted a boat in a cove. For reasons completely unbeknown to anyone, Pierce then did something utterly bewildering. He built and lit a signal fire, communicating to the boat, which promptly approached. When it met with Pierce, he willingly turned himself in. He was searched by the officials on board, and the flesh of Cox was found in his pockets, at which point Pierce told him that the man had drowned and that Pierce had cut off the flesh to prove to the colony's officials that he had been lost in the bush. Knowing of Pierce's history, they demanded to know the location of Cox's body, and when they discovered the macabre scene of Pierce's butchering, instantly realised that Pierce was absolutely not telling the full truth. It took little pressing from the officials to convince Pierce to confess to the murder of Cox, though he added to the confession that no man can tell what he will do when driven by hunger. This may have been true, but had he really been so hungry this time, or had Pierce developed a taste for human flesh? Had he turned himself in after he had killed Cox because he had finally felt a pang of guilt, or was he simply frightened of his own self? Once his confession had been taken, Pierce was clapped in chains and sent to jail in Hobart Town to await trial for the murder of Cox. Though the earlier murders were even more damning, there had never been any evidence as to what had actually happened out in the rainforests and mountains. But with the body of Cox in such a state as it was, finding Pierce guilty was a walk in the park, and Pierce was sentenced to be hanged until dead, and afterwards tossed over to the surgeons to be dissected for medical science. At 8am on Monday the 19th of July 1824, Pierce was led out to the gallows where his confession was read out by a priest. He was then allowed to pray and ask his forgiveness before he was hanged at 9am on the dock. 
After the dissection of his body, his head was later passed on to an artist to be drawn for the study of phrenology, with his skull eventually being kept as a souvenir and passed down through the years to eventually reside in the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, where it still rests until this day. Pierce's story is, in many respects, still as unbelievable today as it was in 1823 as he explained it to the incredulous officials back in Hobart Town. Undeniably, a story of rollicking adventure was an incredible feat of not only human endurance, but also of human depravity. So that was Alexander Pierce and his story of rollicking adventure, or whatever it was quoted as as being. Yeah, I thought it was really great. Everyone loves a bit of cannibalism, don't they? And we'll be back to talk a little bit about that after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, I need to run a few ads. Our long-time advertising partner is Audible, and the reason I've stuck with them for so long is that they offer a service that I actually use and enjoy myself. And I do think it actually offers value to people like myself who enjoy podcasts. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service which charges a monthly fee in return for one credit, which you're free to spend on any audiobook you like. The catalogue is huge, multilingual, and covers everything from fiction to series of lectures. They have an iOS, Android and web app, and if you use more than one, they all sync up together so that you can listen on any of your devices without having to skip about. If you ever feel like you want to take a break from the subscription, you can do so and you get to keep all your previously bought books. And when you get into a drought, you can just fire it up again and start gaining credits seamlessly. Some of my favourite books on there to date are the complete Sherlock Holmes, which is read by Stephen Fry. And they've also got the original Exorcist book and just a huge history back catalogue. And I've really enjoyed all of those, basically. So if this sounds like something you might be interested in, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories, and that's dark histories all one word. And you can start a free trial that offers a monthly subscription with one free credit so that you can instantly pick an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the trial, you feel like it's not really for you, you can just cancel it and it's cost you nothing and you get to keep your free book. So once again, that's audible.com forward slash dark histories or you can find the link in the show notes. 
So earlier I mentioned listener support and there are a ton of ways that you can get involved and support Dark Histories. The main way is to become a Patreon patron. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, I'm sure you're familiar by now, but for those not so much, Patreon is a way to make a monthly pledge in return for some small perks. On the Dark Histories Patreon, I set my pledges as low as I can really with options for one, three and five dollars per month. And for that, you gain things like early access episodes without these horrible ads, PDF notes and resources that I make and find during my research for each episode. There's also access to the live stream archives and more. So if you enjoy the show and you think it's worth it to you, hop over to darkhistories.com and you can find all the ways that you can support, including our Patreon, or just check out the links in the show notes. If none of that appeals, then sharing it around with all your friends and family is equally as helpful and just as much appreciated. So if you're here, then thanks so much for not skipping the ads with that 30-second skip button and giving my hard sell a listen. I'll let you get back to the episode. Cheers. Welcome back. So, Alexander Pierce, a really interesting story. I First of all, I've got to really apologise for the fact that I've always wanted to branch out with Dark Histories and do like more international stories. And I've been looking towards Australia for a really long time and I've got a few that are lined up with, within Australia. And yet the first one that I've kind of managed to knock out and do is based on the penal colonies, which feels like such a stereotypically British thing to focus on. So I do, you know, I feel like I should sort of apologise for that to any Australian people who are probably rolling their eyes as soon as they, you know, found out, oh, right, yeah, you're focusing on the penal colonies. Nice one. But, uh, yeah, but I thought it was a good interesting story and I wanted to do it. And like I say, everyone loves a bit of cannibalism, don't they? So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it anyway. I thought it was just a really great kind of adventure story in a way. I really liked the the, the kind of adventure aspect of the story, like the the, the, the landscape and... And the fact that they were actually just completely useless and it was all just like a sort of cream towards an inevitable conclusion. I, I quite like that as a lot of kind of natural inbuilt kind of adventure and tension. But yeah, otherwise, I guess there's not so much to talk about. There is one thing and that's why he turned himself in at the end. And I, I found that like really interesting. So it, he didn't even really want to escape that last time with Cox. And it was more like he kind of went along with it a little bit. And then when he did escape, they didn't really achieve much. You know, they only escaped for like nine days. And then he just kind of decided to kill Cox and to start eating him, even though he didn't need to because he had provisions on him. And then almost immediately turned himself in. So so, so what's going on there, like psychologically speaking? Like, was he, so was he feeling guilt? I mean, he said that he felt remorse. But I don't believe that this man has ever felt remorse for anything he's done in his entire life. I think he's probably absolutely demented. So I'm not sure he really was remorse. But so, so what was it like? Was it like a feeling of guilt or remorse, or 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 was it more like was he just kind of scared at himself? Like did he kind of have a moment of like realization? Did he sort of come outside of himself a little bit and and sort of realize, sort of see himself for what he was doing and 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 sort of scare himself or something? It's it's quite strange. Um, it, if that's the case, it seems like it took a long time to get there because, you know, he spent all that time basically before that 
as a kind of hero for marching across Van Diemen's land and surviving off seven other convicts. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a really weird one. Like, why is he, like, the the question of why he wound up handing himself in so quickly. I mean, it did seem like the escape attempts quite often were more like holidays rather than genuine escape attempts by the prisoners. It seemed like they just sort of wanted to get out into the bush for a bit and have a break from work and being told what to do because it seemed like so many escape attempts in, especially from Hobart's town where life was a little bit, I don't want to say easy because it certainly wasn't, but a little bit easier than Sarah's Island. It it, it seemed in that case like, you know, they they wanted to escape for freedom, but it was a double-edged sword because they were instantly pulled away from the society and drinking and hanging out with their mates and they kind of realised that that this kind of swings and roundabouts, right? It's like there's, there's pros and cons to both being free and being back in, in society. like and, and if you're going to escape, yes, you've got a certain amount of freedom, but you're also cast outside of the society that essentially I'd assume you kind of feel like you need when you're in that much of a kind of solitary environment. All in, it was a really interesting story. And, and I found a lot of like interesting history in there that surprised me. Like a lot of the penal colony um, history really surprised me. Just the way that they were treated and had like an element of freedom about what they did with their time. You wouldn't say it was nice. I think, in a way, I think the Pierce story is... Because here I sort of breezed over it a little bit. So, I mean, I could have easily done, like, a single episode just on the history of transportation and the penal colonies, and then a single episode just on Pierce. So sort of pushing them together, I think you sort of get an, an, an idea of the penal colonies within the context of Pierce, Pierce's story... But, you know, that, and it all sort of seems very like, rosy in Hobart Town, but I'm not sure that was so much, quite so much the case. Um, I, I read another book and, it, and it's, um, it doesn't show it in quite such a rosy picture, but I was still surprised by like, the level of freedom that the prisoners were given and the level of kind of responsibility they were given as well to kind of carve their own sort of futures. Um, so I, you know, all that kind of stuff was really interesting history, I found. So yeah, anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. I, I think it was quite a cool story that had like a nice balance of like interesting historical information and adventure and, you know, rollicking adventure or whatever. So yeah, you know, I think it was quite fun. So I did, do hope you enjoyed it. Anyway, I'm probably going to leave that episode here for now. Thank you very much for listening. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure. I will be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode. So in the meantime, if you'd like to get in contact with me, you can do that. Um, You can email me at contact at darkhistories.com. Like always, if you just go to darkhistories.com, you'll find all links to contact me there, including all social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. You'll also find all the ways that you can support if you would like to do so. So yeah, thanks very much for listening. Say, I hope I hope you have a great couple of weeks. Stay healthy, stay happy, and I'll see you real soon. Sleep tight.